Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning, this is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to my podcast Money Talk for Wednesday the 26th of April. And this podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, President Joe Biden has confirmed he will run for re-election for a second four-year term as president next year. Vice President Kamala Harris will again be his running mate. In a video released Tuesday, Mr Biden cast the next election as a fight for democracy and personal freedom and implored voters to let him finish this job he began when he took office. South Korea's economy grew more than expected in the first quarter of this year, buoyed by rising private consumption, which offset a contraction in corporate investment as the semiconductor industry declined. The economy expanded 0.3% quarter-on-quarter in the three months to March, following a 0.4% contraction in the previous quarter. Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda stressed the need to keep monetary policy ultra-loose for now, but said the central bank could raise interest rates if inflation and wage growth overshot expectations. His comments come ahead of the BOJ's two-day policy meeting that kicks off tomorrow, which will be his first meeting he chairs since taking the helm of the central bank earlier this month. And US regulators are attempting to come up with a plan to stabilise regional lender First Republic Bank after its shares plunged almost 50% on Tuesday. First Republic Bank's deposits fell by over 100 billion US dollars in the first quarter. The bank is reportedly in touch with the US government as it struggles to come up with a viable rescue plan such as a sale of all or part of the bank. On today's programme, I'm joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group. With a view from Japan, is Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. And if you want to get in touch, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. On Wall Street, US stocks fell Tuesday following a mixed bag of earnings reports and as fears about the stability of regional banks returned. The S&P 500 finished 1.6% lower at 4,072. The Dow tumbled 345 points or 1% to end at 33,531. And the Nasdaq Composite slumped 2% to close at 11,799. San Francisco-based bank First Republic crashed over 49% after it announced it lost more than $100 billion in deposits in the first quarter. Its shares are down 93% since the start of the year, and US regulators are reportedly meeting to come up with a rescue plan for the bank. The KBW Regional Banking Index tumbled 3.9% to a fresh low for the year. After the closing bell, Microsoft reported first fiscal third quarter results that beat on both the top and bottom lines. Overall company revenue increased 7% year-on-year to almost $53 billion in the quarter ending March 31st. And net income at just over $18 billion was up 9%. Shares of Microsoft rose 8% in after-hours trading, and Google parent Alphabet reported revenue for the first quarter that topped estimates. Alphabet's revenue rose 3% to almost $70 billion from a year earlier. Net income dropped to $15 billion from $16.4 billion a year earlier. And the company said its board authorised a $70 billion share buyback. Shares of Alphabet rose 1% after the close. 
Hong Kong stocks fell to a four-week low led by the tech sector. The Hang Seng Index dropped 342 points or 1.7% to 19,618. That's the lowest level since March the 27th. And since reaching a year high on the 27th of January, the Hang Seng has fallen 13.5%. The tech index slumped 3.5% in its biggest decline since early February. And that's now down 10% over the past seven trading days and more than 20% from this year's peak on January the 27th. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index retreated 0.3% to 3,264, and that index has lost 4% over the last five days. This morning, futures markets are pointing to further declines for Hong Kong stocks. The Hang Seng is projected to open 250 points lower. That's a decline of 1.3%. In the bond markets, US government debts rallied and yields fell. Deposits are shifting from banks to money market funds, and that's pushing the short end of the yield curve higher as those funds invest in short-dated treasuries. The yield on the interest rate-sensitive two-year treasury tumbled back below 4%, falling 19 basis points to 3.96%. And the cost of insuring against a default in US government debt jumped to another record high as so-called X-Day nears when the US Treasury will run out of money and be unable to raise new funds unless Congress approves an increase in the government debt ceiling. And elsewhere in the markets, the US dollar was stronger on haven flows and Brent crude oil tumbled 2.4%. And you can get more details on the latest movements in the markets in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our guests. We have with us capital preservation specialist Enzio von Fahl, our regular Wednesday commentator. Morning, Enzio. Morning, Peter. And also with us is Hao Hong, chief economist at Grow Investment Group. Morning to you, Hao. Morning, Peter. And well, as you heard there, Chinese markets have extended their slump. One other index I suppose I should mention, the Hang Seng China Enterprises Index of Chinese stocks listed in Hong Kong. That fell 2% yesterday. It's lost more than 5% this month. And it's now the second worst performer among more than 90 global equity gauges, which are tracked by Bloomberg. Um, how, what's gone wrong for Chinese markets? What do you attribute this to? Um, yeah, Hong Kong is actually, you know, one of the worst performing markets, uh, year today. But recall that, you know, the Hong Kong market started to rebound, uh, at, um, late October, uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, the rebound has been fast and furious, right? So, you know, from the bottom to the top, uh, Hong Kong Hang Seng Index has, uh, bounced more than 50%, right? So now we're giving some of the gains back. But it, even so, you know, the, the speed at which um, you know, the loss is accumulating is somehow surprising, you know, given that you know, the Chinese economy is recovering uh, and also uh, the Hong Kong stocks is still very cheap. And so it, I, th- I believe that it surprised you know, many people, you know, how fast we're losing the gains. Mm. And the other thing that surprises me is the timing, because it came almost to the day that we had that economic data where we got better than expected uh, GDP product figures. Uh, we also had this huge, what, almost 15% surge in year-on-year exports in March, but the markets just seem to have ignored all of that. Mm, I think the market has been anticipating some recovery. And so I think even though the GDP figure is better than expected, 
but I think most people are looking at the monetary policy, you know, for further support for the market and also for the economy. Um, I think for the first three months of the year, um, monetary expansion has been, you know, the highest on record in history. Mm-hmm. Right? So, uh, so, you know, people think that, you know, might be it's time to take a pause, you know, because, you know, we have uh, released so much liquidity into the system. Uh, it's time to wait and see uh, how effective uh, the, po- the policy has been. Uh, so to determine the next step. And also we know that monetary policy works with the lag. Uh, and I think that is the reason why PBOC is pausing as well. So even though in the recent days, uh, the uh, PBOC has been injecting liquidity uh, into the uh, open market system, uh, but it's mostly because of the global week holiday that is coming uh, at the end of this week. The, the top leaders in Beijing do seem to be concerned, don't they, about this recovery, even though we had the good GDP data, retail sales, which beat expectations. Uh, they were talking about um, a, a recovery that was quite unstable. They were talking about uh, consumption not being strong enough and wanting to maybe boost consumption, particularly in rural areas. Do you think that's put people off just hearing the, the nation's top leaders, maybe themselves, expressing concerns? Mm, I think uh, consumption is actually better than expected. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the retail sales, it's uh, going up uh, 13% year on year. Uh, it's way exceeding expectation. But what's worrying is the uh, investment part of, of the economy, especially in the property sector. For some reason, the property developers are still not putting money uh, back into uh, building new houses. And as you know, you know, the property sector is like one quarter to one third of the Chinese economy. Uh, if the property sector is not recovering generally, uh, there will be no recovery for the entire economy. Enzi, I know you've been concerned about the consumption in China for a while. Yes. You see it as being just too low in terms of percentage of GDP. Yeah, structurally, it's it's about a third of GDP, whilst in normal developed economies, it's generally, in my experience, about 75% of GDP. So I think that there's a lot of room to for expansion, to put it nicely, but if people don't consume because they're scared about their jobs, especially outside those booming areas of Shanghai and Shenzhen, for instance, there, there, there are various pockets of boom in China. But my friends who've been there recently are saying that not all of China is booming. It's just these individual beacons of light, but not the whole place. The other point being with the exports, yes, it is true that they rose 14%. A lot of that is because of the friend shoring. Um, But I think that most people, and I certainly am part of that group, would think that if anything, we're going into a global slowdown, global, not recession, but a slowdown, a form of stagflation, a mild form of stagflation. So I think that, again, is going to hit the Chinese economy on top of, of course, demographics, which is a much longer term issue. I've heard some fund managers express the view that that March export number is is quite dubious. They're, They're not really convinced that there is a strong recovery in exports going on, particularly when you look at the state of the global economy. What do you you think? Well, I tend to agree with that, because if you look at the dry bulk shipping rates, they've been tumbling down yet again on the the shipping side, surprise, surprise. And um, the the consumption also in the U.S., I mean, you you just, if the U.S. does slow, the world cannot defy gravity. I don't know of any economy anywhere in the world that has done well off a credit crunch. I just don't know of one. I don't think this time is going to be different. The credit crunch, the Fed tightening is now being replaced by the credit crunch of the 
banks themselves, or the private sector banks, and also this huge shift away from from bank deposits into Apple and deposits mm-hmm. with the Apple computer companies. Um, and so th- there's a lot of structural shift going on. There's, it's going to sort of put a dent in growth in my mind in the U.S. and thus globally. I saw, I saw a figure uh, actually today which said that M2, the money supply in the U.S., has yeah. actually contracted for the first time in 90 years. That's not a good sign, is it? Well, it's been going. It's they've they've only started their proper tightening back in April of last year, and now with the credit crunch coming through, also as you say, the M two figure has to decelerate massively, um, and and shrink just because the banks are not going to lend as much, and when they don't mm. lend, the place doesn't grow. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, let me ask you a bit more about consumption. I mean, we, we obviously, when, when we look at the Chinese economy, we think about Shanghai and Beijing and Shenzhen, but we yes. tend to forget that 900 million uh, of the population yes. live in the countryside. The government says it wants to get rural consumption uh, growing and, and, and boost that. Mm-hmm. How does it do it? Uh, well, I think if you, if you want to boost consumption, you know, you must boost uh, income. All right. So for for the longest time, I think the income share of Chinese workers uh, in the overall GDP is one of the lowest uh, internationally speaking. Uh, so you know, unless you can boost uh, income growth substantially, yes. it's very difficult to boost consumption. So I think for yeah. now, you know, China remains as a consumption-led economy. Uh, sorry, investment-driven economy mm. uh, that is driven by uh, infrastructure spending and also by property. Isn't that the problem? The, the Chinese leaders, they have this common prosperity policy, which seems to focus on social engineering. But as you say, the only way really to improve people's livelihoods uh, and, and to get their wealth up is to, is to basically find better, uh, better jobs, create more jobs, better paying jobs. But then when you look at those employment figures that we had, nearly one in five young people are, are out of work. Graduates can't find a job. Yeah. That's the root cause of the problem, isn't it? Or well, one of the problems. Yeah, I think it's also a function. The unemployment, young youth unemployment situation is also a function of economic growth slowing down, right? So as you know, um, one percent of GDP growth can generate about you know ten million jobs uh, in in the Chinese economy today. And nowadays, each year, uh, the Chinese system produces twelve million new graduates uh, annually. Right? So basically, mm-hmm. you have more uh, supply of labor than uh, demand of labor. And also, you know, there are other people who are looking for jobs as well. So that is the reason why, you know, the, the youth uh, unemployment situation is particularly acute uh, and it's very difficult to resolve. So uh, the very high unemployment rate among young people has been persisted, uh, persistent for some time now, I think for, for over two years now, ever since uh, uh, the COVID outbreak. And I don't think there is a sort of a, a comprehensive solution uh, to the situation just yet. Can I just add to that, Peter, if I may, that I think there's also a huge educational mismatch, not only in China, of too many graduates and too few vocationally trained people Mm -hmm. who repair the cars, the pipes, the ceilings, the electricity, all that. And I just hope that that does sometime at some point kick in this vocational training that the Germans, the Swiss and the Austrians excel at because that's steady income. A house doesn't care if there's a recession. It will, its roof will fall in. 
And government officials last week were suggesting that actually too many people are going to, to university and some of these yes. graduates should, should give up their professional ambitions and be prepared to pa- take lower paid manual jobs. Do, yes. do, do you think that's the solution? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's a solution. It's part of a solution. But I just think it's this educational mismatch between everybody having very extravagant expectations of, um, of high, nice, air-conditioned, cool jobs in big, fat merchant banks and investment banks, um, and nobody really wanting to stoop to the level of wanting to be a waiter, even in Hong Kong, or of a delivery man, of a repair of houses, bridges, construction, all this kind of stuff. But that has to be done. If, if you don't construct the bridges and keep the electricity repaired, then you can forget the rest. Hal, let me ask you a bit more about the markets it, itself. Um, tell me about earnings. How, how are earnings looking and how are valuations looking uh, for the Chinese markets? Is, is that one of the reasons why maybe we're seeing, seeing this sell-off? Yeah, I think um, for the first quarter, you know, most people are not expecting much. So far into the earnings season, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing, you know, very high uh, single-digit growth earnings growth that is largely uh, matching people's expectations, right? So there's really no surprise there. And and this move uh, in the market is not generated by earnings disappointment, but more by geopolitical risk uh, and also by, you know, the, uh, you know, how well the Chinese economy has been performing. I think, you know, so far, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, geopolitics uh, development, uh, basically Biden is going to announce a, a new round of uh uh, and more hawkish uh, a sanction on you know uh, technology industry. Right? So you know I, I'm hearing that you know there's a, an expansion uh, of the sanction into you know some new industries such as biotech uh, and other you know key industries, technology technological industries that uh, Chinese is trying to develop into. Right? So I think that is a huge concern, and that and that is the reason why uh, the Chinese uh, ADRs in the U.S. lost. Uh, over a hundred billion uh, US dollars worth of market cap mm. in the past months, mm. and and these these new sanctions they also threaten investment flows as well, don't they? Into into China, which is going to be a um, a, a first. Uh, are investors concerned about that as well? Yeah, it is concerning, you know, because uh, we're hearing that um, uh, the uh, new sanction can be imposed on new investments uh, mm. into the Chinese uh, te- uh, technology industry, and also. Uh, you know, some of the uh, American uh, PE funds won't be able to put money into the Chinese tech sector anymore, right? So that basically restricts uh, new capital going into the system. And then, as you know, uh, R&D and, and technological breakthrough really needs to burn money. Right? So I think that is sort of, you know, suffocating and taking the oxygen out of the system. Mm. I'm, 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 sorry, you said... If I may just add to that, in my last book on trade myths, I also mentioned what I call host country protectionism. I would not be surprised to see mainland China out of justifiable annoyance with these American congressmen beginning to thwart some of the activities of U.S. companies in China itself. Well, they are already, aren't they? They're targeting Micron, the, the semiconductor manufacturer, yeah, uh, under investigation. It's, it's, um, I, I'm just surprised that the U.S. business community has not risen against these hot-headed congressmen who are really just pulling cheap shots at China because everybody agrees that China is a bad country in America, which is complete nonsense, of course. 
Uh, of course, how this is all coming at a bad time anyway, isn't it? Because we're seeing a general slowdown um, in demand for semiconductors. We, we saw that in those Taiwan export uh, numbers last week. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSMC, has also said um, it, it's going to have the lowest um, annual revenue since 2009. Do you think this is all combining to, to lead partly to the sell-off? Because the, the, some of the biggest stocks that have sold off seem to be in the chip sector. Yeah, I think semi shipment has been uh, slowing uh, since uh, uh, late last year, and this is because you know during the pandemic uh, period, uh, you know um, many factories basically build up uh, semi inventories, right? So now, you know, given that you know uh, there's a global slowdown, therefore you know there's a less demand for chips, and as a result, you know they are basically working off uh, the very high inventory level they have accumulated during the pandemic. Uh, so it's it's not too surprising to see um, shipments from Taiwan is actually slowing as well. But I think you know if you look at the Chinese uh, uh, demand for chips, it's actually increasing, right? Especially you know now uh, the Chinese um, uh, car industry, the electric car industry is taking off big time. Uh, BYD is uh, toppling off uh, Volkswagen, becoming the top selling uh, vehicle uh, in China. Uh, and as you know, uh, cars making, you know, it require a lot of chips. Uh, but these are like middle to low end chips, uh, that uh, China is, uh, buying. I think the high end chips, you know, that is used, for example, AI that, that is being manufactured by Nvidia. Uh, it is not available anymore. Uh, in China, the H100 is not available anymore in China. I'm hearing that, you know, the, the smugglers in Shenzhen who is buying H, uh, H100, the very high end chips, uh, right. in the cafes in Shenzhen. And, and how does China get around this? Because it needs these chips for, particularly, as you mentioned, for yes. AI, don't you? For things like ChatGPT, they re- need really high-end uh, semiconductors. How does China get around all these curbs that the US is putting on it? Yeah, I think for now, there's really no good way. Basically, you, you have to bypass the uh, uh, circum, uh, circumvent the uh, sanction by some, you know, illegitimate, Ill- illegitimate means... <laughs> To, to get your hands on to those mm-hmm. high-end chips. Uh, and also, you know, there are, you know, some inventories in, in China as well, you know, before uh, the sanction was applied uh, on many of these chips. Uh, and also China is, is building lots of money, lots of capital uh, into uh, building up its own uh, chip industry. And as you know, Peter, you know, even though the high-end chips are, you know, hard to come by these days in China, but either you can sort of achieve the same result by using a lot of low-end chips, right? So, but, you know, that basically means that you have less efficiency in the system and more power consumption, but it's mm-hmm. still doable. And also, many of the uh, uh, the uh, products that you use in your daily life, they don't actually need, like, very high-end chips, right? So even for, like, for, for example, in, in cars and also in national defenses, such as the missile guidance system, you, you don't need, like, very, very high-end chips that is... Uh, being produced in the U.S. right now, so I think you know China is trying to get by, you know, by sort of applying uh, a lower technology chips uh, into sort of uh, uh, daily use uh, for now. And I think hopefully over time, you know, with all the investments that we're putting it in, uh, you know, China can develop its own, you know, uh, chip uh, chip uh, industry. Enzio, this is all going to get worse, isn't it? Because we, we had that Financial Times report on Monday, which says the uh, the US is going to try and um, strong arm other countries like South Korea into 
trying to prevent their yeah. uh, electronic yeah. uh, companies from yeah. making up the shortfall in, uh, for, uh, for Micron. So this is all seems to be escalating. Well, the Americans... Yeah, I, yeah. Sorry, sorry, Andrew. Yeah, no, the, having lived in America many, many years, it's, 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 they have many good parts to them, the energy level, the mental resilience, but the one part that isn't so good is they, they seem to think that everybody's, everything is a football game, a, a U.S. eyeball-to-eyeball squad hitting the other squad there could only be a winner and a loser there could not be two winners i just sort of have a different view having studied history a little bit um that you can actually do a win-win but with the with china and ireland now being the only unifying spots in the american landscape in the run-up to the u.s election um i'm afraid that this is only going to this swaggering and telling others what to do on the american part it's only going to worsen and it's going to worsen for some years, I'm afraid. How are you was good. about to say? Sorry, how? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was, uh, you know, just saying that you know the sanctions are sort of encompassing uh, from all directions. All right, so it's basically trying to corner uh, Chinese development uh, and sort of you know retard uh, the pace of Chinese development. Yes. So it is unfortunate for for China and and, and Andrew, right? You know he. Uh, you know, it, it is likely to be, you know, years in the making. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think, you know, uh, many people in China is basically facing up the reality and trying to develop its own system uh, now. As in, for example, you know, in the AI space, right, so there's a huge rivalry going on uh, between the domestic Chinese tech firms and also the U.S. tech firms. Uh, the Chinese uh, tech firms are coming up with, you know, the Chinese uh, language-based uh, AI system. As you know, AI needs a lot of uh, data and I think the foreign firms, the U.S. firms, doesn't have access to a lot of Chinese language data. But you know, on the contrary, mm-hmm. uh, the Chinese uh, tech firms actually accumulated huge amount of uh, Chinese uh, data over the years. Uh, so I think you know this is one example you know to show that you know China is not completely out of options. You know there are no. uh, you know many ways to compete. Now, one other thing that's been cited as a reason for the sell-off here in Hong Kong um, are capital outflows. The Hong Kong Monetary Authority has intervened seven times so far now to support the Hong Kong dollar this year. The aggregate balance, which is uh, the amount of deposits held by local banks at the Hong Kong Monetary Authority, has dropped below 50 billion Hong Kong dollars. That's the lowest in 15 mm. years. Um, how, an NCO, how, how much is this a, a concern, do you think, for local investors? Yeah, okay, I'll take the deep Thank you, Hal. Thank you very much. Well, I think it's it's very much a mercantile concern. I, I'm not going to sort of agonize on this one. It's just that the the US short rates are very, very high. You in your notes this morning cited two year treasuries at four percent, basically ten years at three point four. Well, one month is at five point oh two, three months and six months are at five point three, five point four percent. So it's that very strong interest rate differential which is not being passed on in Hong Kong. So the Hong Kong rates are much lower than the US rates, and that's it's a, just an old fashioned arbitrage. Um, action which over time once they do finally raise the rates here they can solve that problem very that's a problem that can be solved very easily by just raising the Hong Kong rates yeah I, I totally agree with Denzio uh, basically the Hong Kong short rates are just too low you know the HKMA hasn't been following uh, the Fed's uh, pace in hiking interest rates so as a result you know, there's a sterling pressure on the 
uh, Hong Kong dollar. And basically, you know, in the Hong Kong banking system now, you can you can do a U.S. dollar uh, deposit for like more than five percent, you know, maybe to six percent. Uh, uh, annualized interest rate. <laughs> so, so wow, people are basically yeah. converting the Hong Kong dollar into the US dollar deposit. And as a result, uh, the aggregate balance in the banking system is very, very low. And it is concerning, you know, if you look at the chart, you know, it's basically more or less the same as 2008. And, you know, for, uh, for people who has a bearish uh, opinion on the market, you know, that obviously adds you to the fire. Interesting, yeah. How finally, let me ask you then, uh, to put your neck on the block a little bit here, how much further has this sell-off got to go, do you think? And, and where would you be looking uh, for, for a bottom? Yeah, my trading range uh, forecast that is set out uh, late October last year was between 18,000 to 23,000. So interestingly, you know, the, the peak of this rally uh, stopped at about 22,800, right? So it's only 200 points away from my uh, top, uh, top of my range. And I think, you know, you know, 18,000 ish, uh, is quite likely and we're going to see that very soon. And, and does the market look cheap at, the, at those levels or even at these levels yeah. now? It is always, always been mm. cheap. So, you know, <laughs> cheap is not the reason to buy. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Well, wise, wise. Good to hear your thoughts. Thank you both very much indeed. You heard there Hao Hong, who's Chief Economist at Grow Investment Group and Capital Preservation Specialist Enzio von Feil. I'm joined now by Tokyo-based journalist and author William Pesic. Good morning, William. Good morning, Peter. Um, this is an important week, isn't it? The Bank of Japan. Uh, first time we have a new governor uh, for 10 years. Their first meeting is going to be on Thursday and Friday. Normally, um, Bank of Japan meetings tend to sort of pass by uneventfully, but not so much recently. What, what are you expecting from this? Well, I mean, not a whole heck of a lot, frankly. I think that uh, Governor Oeda is still trying to get his feet wet, trying to get a sense of uh, where Japan's economy is, where inflation is, but also what the political environment is in Tokyo and, you know, the broader tolerance, if you will, in the political spectrum for the BOJ to begin tapering at some point or even just beginning to uh, present a, a plan for an exit. So I think for him, this is a, a week of kind of watching and waiting and just talking to policymakers and getting a sense of where things are going. He's kind of telegraphed for the most part that we shouldn't expect any fireworks on Friday when the, uh, the statement or the announcement comes out. So if the BOJ does do something interesting, it will be a big shock to global markets. So it could be interesting. And, and what is it that's stopping him um, doing what the rest of the world's central banks are, which is basically raising interest rates, because he also has inflation, which is well above target now um, in Japan. So he's got every reason to do it. What, what's stopping him? Well, I think that Japan is really worried about becoming the epicenter of the next uh, financial crisis in the world. You know, because Japan's been at zero rates for 20 years, it's become the biggest creditor nation. So basically, investors for 20 years now have been borrowing cheaply in Tokyo and moving that money into higher yielding assets in the U.S. and Europe, India, New Zealand, South Korea, Indonesia, you name it. So whenever the yen gyrates, it tends to pull the rug out from under global markets. Also, I think Japan is essentially addicted to 20 years of free money. And I think there's a lot of concern here 
that after you know the Silicon Valley Bank uh, episode in the U.S. after the Credit Suisse episode, that there's a lot of regional Japanese banks that you know are not ready for global prime time and are not ready for the BOJ to step away from free money. And so I think uh, you know Governor Oweda, Oweda, his big plan at this point is to just take a look at the, the situation with with the regional banks and to get a sense of how systemically risky. The BOJ stepping away from free money will be, you know, that's the problem with 20 years of of zero. It's very, very hard to step away from it. Mm. And and on the regional banks, it's not over, is it, in the US? We're seeing now problems for First Republic um, Bank. Its shares are down 50%. Effectively, it looks like it's going to have to be rescued um, by the US government. So uh, there's more pressure on on the regional banks when people were starting to think that the banking crisis is over. And of course, Japan has got a lot of small regional regional banks as well, hasn't it? Exactly. Japan has more than 100 regional banks spread around the nation. And the problem is that a lot of these banks are serving what are effectively dying communities, right? It's an aging population. There's not a lot of demand for new homes, for new cars. And so a lot of these banks in Japan, they make all their money the way that uh, SVB did. They buy government debt. And that's exactly why Japanese regulators are looking at regional banks here and taking a deep breath and hoping for the best. So if you're Governor Oeda, you really are stepping into what I would argue is the worst job in global economics. You have to find a way to step away from 20 years of free money without crashing the financial system. And it's easier said than done. And that's why I don't expect a lot from the BOJ this year. Um, but I could be wrong about that. We'll see. And, and the Bank of Japan is, is apparently considering um, conducting a comprehensive review of the, the monetary easing steps it's taken um, over the past uh, decade. You almost think, well, good luck with that, don't you? Because um, when, when you do that type of review, it, it presumably can only conclude uh, that it hasn't worked out that well. Exactly. And, you know, the BOJ's balance sheet is now twice the size of Japan's annual GDP, which is a first for a a G7 economy. I remember back in December, on December 20th, the BOJ tried to pull off the slightest tweak uh, in interest rates. They basically let 10-year yields rise to about 0.5 percent, and all hell broke loose in global markets. The yen surged, uh, Wall Street panicked, and so... I think the BOJ is looking at that episode. They're looking at the just the extent to which they're levered. And um, it's it's a difficult moment for them. Um, yeah, Japan's economy is reasonably stable at the moment. Inflation is, is arguably easing, but it's very hard to step away from 20 years of, you know, basically being the, the world's ATM. Mm. How on earth does it get out of that when you hold more than half of your your government bond market on your on your balance sheet and and you've had this 10 years of zero negative interest rates how on earth do you get out of something like that it's almost impossible isn't it no it is it really is and it's almost it's an almost impossible job and i think a lot of it relies too on the federal reserve i think a lot of Japan's window to step away from 20 years of free money will be when the Federal Reserve stops raising interest rates. And we're really not sure when Jerome Powell will indeed, you know, basically call the end to the most aggressive tightening cycle from the Fed in 30 years. And that's a big variable. I think at the moment the BOJ is just in technical mode. They're, they're just trying to do their best to keep yields in the U.S. and Japan from drifting too far apart. Mm. Now, another area where there could be some fireworks, the G7 meeting, which is taking place in Japan uh, on May the 19th. 
It's going on at the same time that the US is talking about more pressure um, on China's economy. It's talking about restricting investment flows um, into China. And there's also reports that it's going to put pressure on other G7 nations to maybe uh, follow suit. Is, is Japan, where does Japan stand on that? Well, Prime Minister Kishida has been very close to uh, President Biden thus far. I know I think people got excited about how Donald Trump and Shinzo Abe seem to be close. But I think that was a kind of a forced shotgun marriage, if you will, a convenience. I think that Kishida and Biden really are like-minded officials in many ways. And I think that, you know, Prime Minister Kishida with approval ratings in the high 20s is looking for some wins on the global stage. And so I do think that Japan will stand firm with the U.S. and any of these sanctions that Biden announces. So it's fascinating, really. I mean, people think that Trump was hard on China, but Biden is going after you know, very critical parts of their economy with surgical and methodical precision. I really do think that Xi Jinping in China misses Trump terribly at this point, and the G7 is going to put that on, uh, you know, basically it's going to highlight that, that fact. I mean, Trump's sanctions weren't particularly effective, were they? And if anything, they, he shot himself in the foot with with some of them, damaged his own economy more than China's. But, um, but Biden's uh, sanctions are hurting. Yes. Well, I think that a lot of Trump's sanctions, they did more damage to Japan and South Korea than they did to China. And I think the officials in Tokyo and Seoul are very, very uh, bitter about that. But I do think that, you know, Biden has to be careful as well for blowback in that direction. And I think, you know, you have President Yoon of South Korea, who's in the U.S. this week, basically lobbying uh, President Biden to give Korea a pass on U.S. tech sanctions towards China. Um, Japan will be asking for that as well. So I think that Biden has to be very careful to remember who his friends are in this regard and to uh, make allowances, if you will. I hope he does. Mm. And there's talk about um, putting pressure on uh, the South Korean government to to maybe sort of put the the screws on their tech companies not to provide chips to China to fill up the gap if if Micron uh, gets sanctioned in in retaliation by the Chinese government. Do you think uh, Japan's willing to do the same thing with some of its tech companies? Well, I think Japan will be very wary about doing that. But I think at the end of the day, they, they might feel like they need to. And I think, you know, what's interesting, you see the way that South Korean companies, the you know electric vehicle companies are investing pretty heavily in the U.S. at this point, And that's going to get China's attention. And you see here in Japan, companies like Toyota are upping their investments in the U.S. as well, which is something that Biden loves to uh, tout, if you will, in Washington. But I do think the G7 is going to be a fascinating moment uh, for Western China relations. And I think that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin and Russia are both uh, dreading the outcome of uh, of these talks. We'll see. Is, is this going to be the main focus then of the G7? Going to be China, going to be trade, uh, particularly the technology sector and also maybe Taiwan? Yes. I mean, I think I think Russia as well will, 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 will come into uh, firm focus as well at the G7. But I do think that that China and the U.S. relations will be front and center. And the ways in which that relationship has fallout, collateral damage, if you will, for Japan and South Korea will be very much on the table as well. So it'll be one of the more consequential G7 meetings we've seen in some time. It'll be interesting. And it's happening in Hiroshima, which also has all kinds of historical echoes. So it will be a fascinating few days in uh, Western Japan. Well, we'll have to talk to you again around the time of the G7 and get your thoughts on on the outcome of that. So once again, William, thank you very much indeed.
Thanks, Peter. My pleasure. That's William Pesic, Tokyo-based journalist and author. Thank you for listening this morning. I'll be back tomorrow with more business and finance headlines. To discuss them, I'll be joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Alex Frew McMillan, a freelance writer and Asia columnist for TheStreet.com. And with a view from Singapore is Jeff Howey, who's market strategist at the Singapore Exchange. If you want some more information on some of the top stories from the region, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find on peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. I'll see you tomorrow. Money Talk.